Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is September 3rd, 2016, and this is episode one, a march through time, the history of emergency management in Canada. In this episode, we glance back in history to the beginnings of emergency management in Canada and discuss its roots in civil defense. We also have an interview with Fred Armbruster, the executive director of the Canadian Civil Defense Museum, as he takes us on a hidden tour of a bunker from a long forgotten era of emergency management in Edmonton. All this and more on episode one of Epic Podcasts, current, relevant, Canadian. Today we're talking about Canadian EM routes in the civil defense era. While today we enjoy an all-hazards, comprehensive approach to emergency management, that's not always the way it's been. Canadian EM has gone through several evolutions, and civil defense is often credited as the birthplace of modern EM. It's this period that was fundamental in the shift towards the protection of citizens as a government responsibility, and there are still features of civil defense era emergency management in many of our modern systems today. That's right, and it's funny to think that the responsibility to protect citizens wasn't always at the forefront of uh, government initiatives. Uh, but really, it wasn't until after World War I that this idea came to fruition. What was it about that time period? Well, as with many advancements in emergency management, a major focusing event was needed to push things forward. Uh, in 1937, which marked the beginning of the Air Raid Precaution Organization, which is the root of civil defense, uh, the Canadian government was preparing for war. With advances in technology, the major recognized threat was that of air attacks, specifically gas. To that end, the Air Raid Precaution, or the ARP organization, was created to see what could be done to protect citizens from a non-military standpoint. So was this under like Public Safety Canada? No, actually, fun fact, this was under uh, the... Department of Pensions and National Health, which is really a reflection of of how little um, the government was prepared to deal with uh, a more civilian-based disaster response program. Now, eventually, after World War II, with the change in threat, uh, the ARP was disbanded, and the Canadian government switched more towards peacetime efforts until the next big threat came along. Yeah, that ties in with what what I read as well. So, uh, essentially, that experience of the uh, blitz and, and things in the UK where uh, populations were being for the first time bombed uh, in mass uh, uh, levels, you know, basically trying to uh, undermine a population's will to fight. It led to a, uh, a new concept of the need of protecting civilians on a mass scale. And the climate of civilian defense really changed dramatically uh, in 1949 because that's when the first Soviet weapons were tested. and. Uh, it was known that they then had uh, nuclear capabilities. So around the same time in, in Canada, uh, Major General F.F. F. Worthington had just been appointed as the Federal Civil Defense Coordinator. And he spent about a year traveling the world studying uh, how civil defense was being done in other allied countries. He came back to Canada and, and started implementing some changes, some of which we um, uh, can still uh, see present today. Uh, for example, fire hoses uh, needed to be standardized. Uh, the coupling sizes uh, for hydrants and um, hoses from different regions uh, were all various sizes at the time, so they had to be uh, brought together under one national hose standard. Uh, initial plans were made for uh, mass warning systems and evacuation routes. 
Uh, some key cities are identified, you know, the major cities you'd expect, like Halifax, Quebec City, Ottawa, Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, etc. And they were identified as a high target cities that needed special uh, planning precautions. Um, federal plans uh, were then uh, implemented, but the crux of the operation was still falling towards the municipalities who actually had to implement the plans. Uh, up until about 1950, where the first Dominion Provincial Conference of Civil Defense took place. And this is where some of the uh, big ideas that permeated the civil defense era uh, took root. And sounds kind of simple now, but uh, the idea was that early warning can in fact save lives. So was this civil defense era spurned by the Cold War threat? Was this similarly experienced in the United States? Yeah, you know, in many ways, the parallels in, in the development of emergency management were the same uh, between the U.S. and Canada, but there were a few key differences. Uh, for one, there was less of a federal coordinating role in Canada in comparison to the to the U.S., but many of the focusing events, like the Cold War, um, uh, followed the same timeline. So there's a lot of parallels. In the 1950s, right in the middle of the civil defense movement, um, Communities were setting up organizations across the country. Volunteers were organizing plans. And in 1954, uh, a discovery as a result of one of the U.S. atomic bomb tests was uh, that fallout was actually a major hazard. Uh, up until then, it had kind of been presented to the public, and you can see this in the in the pamphlets of the day, that atomic bombs were essentially just a, a really big explosion, like a conventional explosion, just a bigger way of, of blowing something up. Uh, in the mid-50s, it was uh, communicated and became more common knowledge that the radioactive threat was uh, something that hadn't been faced before. And this is what spurned the need for uh, fallout bunkers. Yeah, it's interesting to observe the government's reaction to both the, the changing threat, whether it be technological from gas to more nuclear, uh, and then the changing political conditions in terms of funding and where the responsibility lies. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners can relate to that struggle nowadays to find out who's responsible for various factors of mm -hmm. emergency management or how to take advantage of that brief window of opportunity that you get from a focusing event. Um, one of the most interesting aspects of the civil defense era was the creation of these secret underground fallout bunkers across Canada. It's a bit of a lost history really. And uh, to that end, we traveled to Edmonton to try and find out a little bit more about this. Yeah, huh. should, should I tell the story? Yeah. Should, should you? Well, it was rainy. Yeah. It was rainier than that. Absolutely. So we went down to Edmonton uh, to meet with a fellow by the name of Fred Armbrister. I'm actually the only technician in all of Canada that can serve scenario sorry. <laughs> this is a real emergency. I repeat, this is a real emergency. This is the Canadian Broadcasting System. He took us uh, on a tour of the outside of the bunker, and it looked like a pretty inconspicuous building at first. What do you think most people think this is when they drive by the... That's a pretty busy road there. What right. do most people think this Quite is? Quite often they just think it's a utility building for like water or something like that, or sewage or, you know, like a pump house. They don't realize that below the ground is a 2,600 square foot building larger than the average home. So this is the uh, main entrance. So th what I was saying, when you go in through this door, you go into an airlock. You would close the door behind you, and then you would go into the uh, into the stairwell. And when you get into the stairwell, there is a, a small room 
uh, to the right with a little door and that's your air pump room for your the exhaust system. The bunker is 2,600 square feet. Um, it has 11 foot ceiling heights in there. Everything is constructed with uh, concrete and steel. The uh, walls and, and ceiling is one foot thick and every 10 feet you have two foot square uh, concrete and steel beams. Well, the Edmonton bunker was designed uh, to withstand an atomic bomb uh, from a distance of downtown. Uh, the bunker itself here in Edmonton um, operated on six full-time staff, paid. It was designed to operate uh, under 36 people in the event of an attack. What would have happened through the dew line, mid line and the pine tree line is that they would receive what's going on and determine that they were being under attack. They would notify the uh, federal officials which would then communicate that to the Civil Defense Department and they would then determine where the fallout would go and uh, they would sound the sirens off in that accordance and instruct uh, people what to do in that event. And as I did my research in the archives, uh, provincial and municipal archives, I realized that this is a really important part of our history. So there's been a lot of things lost over the years, and one of them was the, the bunkers, but what a great experience to uh, go with Fred and, and see this old remnants of the civil defense era right in front of our eyes. One of the stories that stuck with me was the telling of a, uh, an anecdote from one of the secretaries that worked in the bunker and spent most of her career working there, that she would use the emergency kitchen there to make uh, chocolate chip cookies for the other workers. Oh. And I, I, I just find that such an interesting juxtaposition, this bunker built for the most uh, uh, doomsday-like situations, and yet we've uh, uh, got somebody baking cookies inside of it. Uh, the one thing I perhaps missed the most, though, from the, <laughs> the civil defense days is the air raid sirens, because uh, it, it looks like they'd be a lot of fun to uh, test. Nothing quite uh, motivates a movement like an air raid siren. <laughs> so, after the 1960s, uh, as interest in bunkers and the traditional civil defense planning started to wane, we really saw a transition from a preparedness for war to a preparedness for all sorts of natural hazards. There's a few events like Hurricane Hazel that really made it clear that emergency planners had more to do than just prepare for uh, an atomic apocalypse. As a result, uh, provinces like Ontario implemented new emergency measures branches and formed new legislative frameworks to try and address that issue. And these in introduced new responsibilities that weren't really part of the traditional civil defense mandate. Things like flood protection, public education, specifically around natural hazards, uh, ensuring critical infrastructure and backup power facilities, uh, working with multiple levels of government to uh, ensure continuity. And although there was a major shift in the hazardscape that uh, the government was addressing, a lot of the civil defense era uh, mechanisms were still in place. So we had these civil defense organization community volunteers that all of a sudden became emergency management organizations. So a bit of a rebranding as the definition evolved, a rebranding as the hazardscape and the political landscape evolved. 
uh, but still a very strong basis in, in civil defense. And just like uh, many of us are, are familiar, funding certainly can wax and wane uh, with the politics of the day. Um, you know, look at JEP funding and things like that. In the 70s, it was no different. There was a period uh, described by some authors as the regressive period, um, particularly in Ontario in 1975, where uh, almost all of the uh, centralized funding for emergency uh, management um, had dwindled and in some austerity measures from the government of the day, they had taken on a lead ministry approach, meaning that there was going to be no central emergency measures organization coordinating planning. It would be the responsibility of each individual uh, ministry to make sure that the emergency aspects of their portfolios were met. Uh, this strategy uh, was actually quickly reversed though um, following the 1979 train derailments in Mississauga, which prior to Fort McMurray was actually the largest peacetime evacuation in Canadian history. Um, some of the critics of the response to that disaster uh, blamed the legislative changes. So um, there was a bit of a reversal and community local-based uh, management agencies were reinstated. And it's funny to watch that throughout history there has been a flux of in who is responsible, who has authority, and what sort of legislative support that uh, these agencies receive. So if you look at from a legislative point of view, we've got all the way back to 1914 is the War Measures Act, um, which very much supported a centralized approach to crisis with a focus on war, and that evolved into the Emergency Measures Act after the FLQ crisis, as we saw that that sort of wartime approach was no longer um, appropriate in, in a more modern environment. And you know, on the tail end of the 80s, we saw a series of um uh, large-scale industrial accidents that really caught the public's attention. Uh, in Chernobyl, um, the nuclear plant uh, meltdown, there was a big focus in, in Ontario, especially looking at nuclear power plant safety. And in 1990, we th started to see more of an emergence of the mitigation role. And it's interesting to note that as the decades progressed, we're getting closer and closer to what we recognize today as the modern disaster cycle, as those uh, additional roles were being added. Civil defense era was really all about um, you know, preparing for a response, and now we're seeing a bit more of a, a holistic approach. Um, during the 1990s was also the years of the UN declaration for natural disaster reduction, and this kind of propelled a bit more of a, a thoughtful approach to emergency management, and we, we started to see a maturity of the field. And that led us up to the two, early 2000s, um, the late 90s, uh, Ontario saw a very significant ice storm. Of course, 9-11 was a huge focusing event for, for the world. This era saw the beginning of a more comprehensive emergency management cycle, and that's a lot of the uh, catchphrase we hear today in emergency management is comprehensive emergency management programs that incorporate all four pillars of the cycle, uh, using things that are uh, promoting risk-based planning, formal HVAs, that sort of thing. Well, it's interesting as we look back on these this shift from a wartime to a, a more all-hazards approach. I'm wondering if we're almost cycling back to a, a more centralized approach again because we've got this new emphasis on homeland security, domestic terrorism, external threats, and we've got an upward shift in terms of authority, um, both in Canada and in the United States, where we see high levels of control and authority coming from new legislation that... Uh, would never have existed before, wouldn't have been appropriate before. Uh, 
but is very reminiscent of a civil defense era where this external threat prompted a, a very a, a vast array of government powers. Yeah, it's interesting because the some of the prevailing theories talk about the change from a, a top-down to a bottom-up approach. And I, you know, another kind of case study which I think really epitomizes this change over the years, um, if you look at the name changes of the former Canadian Emergency Management College, I think as the names have changed over time, it, it kind of reflected the different thoughts about what um, emergency management is. So the college opened in the 1950s, in 1951, and it was uh, originally called the Federal Civil Defense Staff College. Uh, and then as theories and priorities changed, it became known as the Canadian Civil Defense College in 1954, and that went up to about 1972. Interesting, uh, the original site of the Canadian Civil Defense College actually had a uh, another secret bunker uh, hidden underneath it, which was part of the core continuity of government uh, plan. 1972 to 1985, it was called the Canadian Emergency Measures College. And then uh, in 1985, the name changed again and became called the Canadian Emergency Preparedness College. In 2003, it was uh, still the Canadian Emergency Preparedness College, but it took on a much more kind of comprehensive role. And its uh, course offerings uh, changed quite a bit after uh, 9-11. In 2006, it was renamed the Canadian Emergency Management College. And then as we uh, all know, it was uh, unfortunately closed um, a few years later. And that seems to be the fate of many organizations is to wax and wane and change uh, over the years. Um, and bunkers are perhaps a, an excellent example of a remnant of time past uh, where they were very prevalent and, and almost mirrored the chain of command structure from top to bottom and then eventually over time became irrelevant to the point where they are quite abandoned now and you can literally drive past them without knowing that they're there. Yeah, uh, we, we found out another one's hidden in Penhold, Alberta, when we were driving between right. Calgary and Edmonton. Uh, and I think with the college closing, uh, you know, it does kind of speak to this um, decentralization. That's the ultimate epitome of uh, decentralization. There's no longer any federal central training and, and very minimal uh, federal programs in terms of emergency management training compared to what there once was. And there's really this uh, disseminated approach now to um, uh, local communities and provinces taking on more of a training role. And that's all for this episode one of Epic Podcast, a march through time. Thank you for listening as we explored Canada's EM roots in civil defense. And a very special thank you to Fred Armbruster, who was kind enough to donate his time for the interview segments you just heard. If you want to know more about the Canadian Civil Defense Museum Association, you can visit their website at civildefensemuseum.ca or check out our website for more details. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production. As always, this production is designed as a supplementary educational tool to the emergency management professional. And the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that myself or Josh are employed by or may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, please visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. And feel free to follow us on Facebook at Epic Podcast, all one word, or send us a tweet at username Epic Podcast. Until then, I'm Josh. And I'm Grayson. This has been Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. Current, relevant, 